Uh, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to this week's uh, Keeping an Eye on the Geopolitical Ball with me, uh, Jamie Shea, Senior Fellow at uh, Friends of Europe. Well, this week, uh, I'm going to go back to the Middle East and the war in Gaza. It's still by far the dominant uh, international uh, story. Now, I, I'm not going to sort of take you through the current news because I'm sure that, like me, you're glued uh, to your TV screens and the nightly news bulletins. What I'd like to do today is take the lens slightly out a little bit and, and look at the longer term strategic uh, implications, uh, not just for the Middle East, but for the broader international community of what we've seen thus far uh, in nearly two months now uh, of the crisis between uh, Israel uh, and Hamas. Um, well, First of all, I think there are an enormous number of unanswered questions uh, for which we still don't have uh, even the beginning uh, of an answer, let alone a convincing answer. For example, the humanitarian pause, is it going to continue beyond the extended uh, two days? Will it break down because Hamas uh, will ask for more and more Palestinian prisoners to be released in exchange for fewer and fewer Israeli hostages in order to uh, spin out uh, the ceasefire? Uh, and in order to dominate the agenda and make uh, Israel negotiate with it as much as Israel is trying to uh, fight it. You, you may recall, uh, dear listeners, that uh, back in 2011, the Israelis uh, released 1,027 uh, uh, Palestinian prisoners for just one uh, Israeli uh, staff sergeant, Gilad Shalit, who was held in Gaza uh, for five years. Uh, a second issue concerns the how to balance the military operations with what Israeli spokesmen declare is their real concern uh, to uh, respect to civilian uh, lives and minimize uh, those uh, lives. For example, Israel is now proposing a humanitarian safety zone in the south of Gaza. But how can it possibly bottle up 2.3 million Palestinians who are already bottled up in the broader Gaza into such a small space? They may be protected from bombs and bullets, but would they be protected from disease and dire sanitary uh, conditions? Uh, there's, of course, the question of Israel's military objectives. It still speaks about eliminating Hamas. But uh, is that feasible? Is it not more realistic now to have some more modest and achievable objectives such as uh, wind up the tunnel complex that uh, Hamas has uh, in Gaza or, or destroy their missiles or force their leaders into exile or, or whatever so that it, it would be more difficult for Hamas to attack Israel, particularly on the scale of what we saw on the 7th of October. Another big question is what's going to be the future of Gaza if Israel does not continue with its military occupation and it says it will not? Who's going to run the place? Will it be the UN? Uh, will it be uh, uh, an Arab sort of peacekeeping force? Will the Americans, will the Europeans become involved in that? Uh, how? Who is going to feed uh, the 2.3 million Palestinians that nobody else wants and therefore who will be condemned to stay there and then finally there's a lot of talk about the two-state solution as to being the lesson of this crisis the only way forward the only way to have a durable peace between palestinians and israelis but how do you get to a two-state solution when israelis have come out of this crisis believing that the uh, uh palestinians hate them uh, and don't want to uh, live with them uh, and that therefore any kind of two-state solution even if it's desirable, is simply not feasible. Um, 
Now, there is a broader question that people like me, former diplomats and now sort of think tankers like to ask, which is, will this conflict be transformative? Will it change the world durably? Or will once the dust settles, will we just go back to the old paradigm and business as usual? I mean, you can think of some transformative events, can't you? I mean, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, they're obvious ones. But even 9-11 in the United States, which led to the global war on terror, uh, to Afghanistan, to Iraq, or even Putin's invasion of uh, uh, Ukraine, his annexation of Crimea in 2014, which pushed NATO back to collective uh, defence. I'm not quite sure that the Gaza conflict is going to be transformative. Uh, at the moment, the Americans seem to have been successful in containing the conflict. Iran has not come in. Come in. Uh, Israel uh, probably wants to dust the settled will go back to being being divided as it was before between hawks and doves those who want the total security situation vis-a-vis -vis those who are prepared to uh, negotiate uh, probably will have Hamas still out there somehow or certainly have Hezbollah in Lebanon uh, and the other pro-Iranian militias in Syria uh, and Iraq in else and elsewhere Israel will still be worried about Iran's developing nuclear program but even if this conflict is not transformative what I would like to emphasize today is nonetheless some initial interesting conclusions that I'm seeing and which I think that Western policymakers need to think deeply about uh, in the weeks ahead. Number one is assumptions. Uh, Israel got involved in this crisis because it had assumptions about the behavior of Hamas, that it would be wedded to the status quo, that it wouldn't undertake a military campaign, except for firing the occasional rocket into Israel, that were proven to be wrong. And because Israel had the wrong assumptions, it played down all of the intelligence that indicated that Hamas was preparing something. There was, in fact, on the BBC yesterday evening, an interesting video showing uh, Hamas training for the uh, October the 7th operation in full view, in daylight, uh, just one kilometre away uh, in northern Gaza from the border uh, with uh, uh, Israel. Why were those signals not picked up? Because the assumptions were wrong. And therefore, I think the first lesson for policymakers everywhere is let's test our assumptions to make sure that it's the intelligence that is driving the assumptions and not the assumptions that are driving the intelligence. Because uh, if we get them wrong, uh, and we're proven to be wrong, it's often too late to adjust our policies and react before the worst happens. Lesson number two, radicalization. Now, this is a word that was used in every security article 20 years ago in the wake of the global war on terror, when we saw terrorism, particularly jihadist terrorism, terrorism as the main threat. We haven't really been focused on that recently. Terrorism has moved to Africa or remained in places like Afghanistan, Pakistan and Iraq. We've been more concentrating on great power competition and interstate conflict. But I remember from my generation that the one thing more than anything else that radicalized people and pushed them into violent action was the Arab-Israeli-Palestinian uh, dispute, by far. And if the war goes on for a long time and there's more Israeli bombardments and the worsening of the humanitarian situation, we may see a return to generations of young people in Europe and North America and elsewhere being pushed into terrorist or jihadist or extremist groups and being prepared to use uh, violence. 
Um, these people won't find it as easy to go to a caliphate uh, to join ISIL in Syria or Iraq as they did uh, uh, a decade or so ago. It's not so easy to get to Chad or Mali or Burkina Faso where these groups now uh, thrive, but they will nonetheless be quite capable and ready to carry out actions at home. Uh, and so there is an urgent need to end the conflict in Gaza as quickly as possible, not just as a humanitarian duty, but as a fundamental self-security interest of the democracies. Number three, the rules of war. Uh, we know what the rules of war are, but what this Gaza conflict has shown is the very different interpretations that Israel, Hamas, the Arab states, the Palestinians give to the rules of law, war. For example, to what extent are hospitals protected? Are you allowed to drop 2,000 pound bombs on apartment uh, uh, buildings? Should you give civilians more warning and provide for their evacuation before you attack targets? If you think that you have legitimate self-defense, how far are you able to go with that? Uh, does the, the, the rights of individuals come before the security interests of whole states? I could go on. Uh, so what we need to do after this conflict is have an urgent sort of review, not of what the rules are, the Geneva Conventions, but how they are to be interpreted very, very uh, precisely. The next issue is deterrence. Uh, the Israelis, of course, uh, experienced a breakdown of deterrence on October the 7th. They thought that they had everything in place to contain Hamas, and that Hamas would not fight Israel if the Israeli response would destroy Hamas, who would commit suicide. But clearly this has not worked. Hamas has decided that the short-term risks of having massive casualties is worth the long-term benefit of emerging as the leader of the Palestinian cause, vis-a-vis -vis Fatah and vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinian Authority. At the end of the day, they will come out of this stronger rather than weaker. And if we look at Putin and Ukraine, we see also that the West believed that the threat of economic sanctions would deter Russia. They didn't. Or we believe that the pain that Russia has suffered as a result of sanctions would force it to negotiate and withdraw from Ukraine. It hasn't. So we need to make sure that we really understand whether our adversaries calculate the effect of deterrence in the same way uh, that we do as well. And finally, the new economic order. It's an interesting mix what we're seeing. On the one hand, the old is still there. The United States is still the indispensable nation, the one country that can really get a truce done, can get the Israelis to agree to humanitarian aid, uh, can form uh, both a coalition with Arab states while nudging Israel uh, towards greater uh, moderation. The United States is still, to quote Madeleine Albright, the indispensable nation, and the EU continues to be plagued by the same divisions uh, and the lack of uh, political leverage commensurate with its economic aid that we've seen for a long time. So what's new? But we're also seeing China offering to mediate. We're seeing the greater role of the Arab states of forming uh, negotiating teams and getting involved. We're seeing a small country like Qatar play an outside role in negotiating the hostage release. We're seeing the BRICS meeting. We're seeing the Organization of Islamic Cooperation meeting, the Arab League meeting, ASEAN in Asia meeting. So in a way, we're seeing the new multilateral order where the old states still matter, but only to the extent that they can increasingly work with all of these new partners harmoniously. It's an interesting thing.
So it, it, that's where I stop for today. The war in Gaza tragically is not yet over, but already there is a lot of meat for we in the strategic community to be thinking about if we want to come out of this with more security rather than less. Thank you for listening today. Look forward, as always, to engaging with, with you soon. Uh, take good care and bye from Brussels for now.